So let's go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 3 today, Luke 3, and we're going to continue working our way through the gospel of Luke little by little. Today we're going to be in verses 15 through 20, and then you can pray for Pastor Derek because next week he's preaching the rest of the chapter. And if you're already in Luke 3, look at that. That's a whole bunch of genealogy there. So God bless him. I'm so glad that he drew that week. <clears throat> but if you found Luke 3, let's go ahead and stand together and we're going to read verse 15 through verse number 20. Luke 3 and verse 15, it says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were reasoning in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. John answered, saying to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So that concludes our reading of God's word today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so glad. We are so glad that you have sent your son to be our savior. Lord, we confess as we sang earlier that Christ is our only hope in life and in death. Christ is our sure and steady anchor. It is Christ who lives in us and makes life truly worth living. It is our confident assurance, our joyous assurance that because of Christ, our sins, which were many, are forgiven. Our guilt is gone and we belong to you because you have given your son to us. This is too wonderful to even understand, Lord. I pray as we look at John's testimony today, we might be thrilled with your dear son, that as you are well pleased with him, we might be well pleased with him as well. That Christ might be our, our hope, our joy, our confidence, our wisdom, our strength, our righteousness, our all in all. We pray, Lord, that you might use your word today to make our lives more centered on Christ, more focused on you. And Lord, we ask you to do this by your spirit in our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. The title of the message today really expresses, I think, John's attitude about Jesus, and that is less of me and more about him. 
Last week, Pastor Derek did a great job of presenting to us the preaching of John the Baptist as he called people to repent. And that sounds as such a loud and disruptive cry, even all the way to today. John's voice was heard by many uh, in his day. And as we read in verse 15 at the beginning of our text, people were wondering, is this the guy? Is this the one we're looking for? Now, that seems odd to you and I because we're like, well, Jesus is the one they're looking for, right? He is the the one who's going to come. He is the Messiah, not John. I mean, Luke has already done a pretty good job, hasn't he, of showing us Jesus is greater than John from the announcement of his conception to the birth and the events surrounding it. He's shown us without a doubt that Jesus is greater. So we, we know this already. But the people living around this area in this time have not yet heard Jesus stand up and begin preaching. And begin working miracles. And so John is someone that has captured the attention of the nation. And not just the Jews, but the leaders, the Romans that were in charge as well. Uh, There's a historian from the first century by the name of Josephus that wrote a history of the Jews. And he wrote it really to explain the Jews to the Romans. And he even talks about John the Baptist. It's interesting because he brings them up and these are the words he uses. He says, now many people came in crowds to him for they were greatly moved by his words. Herod, who shows up in our text here that we read, Herod, who feared that the great influences John had over the masses might put them into his power and enable him to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best to put him to death. So Josephus recognizes that Herod was the one who put him to death, but notice what he said about John. He said, they seemed, the people, ready to do anything he should advise. Now that's a guy that has great influence, isn't it? Herod is so concerned about John the Baptist because when John speaks, people listen. The the masses are coming out to him out in the wilderness to be baptized in the muddy Jordan River by this guy, John. And the, the tax collectors are coming. And we read that last week, right? They're saying, what do we do? And he tells them. John has a profound influence so that people are looking and saying, Well, maybe this is the Messiah. You know, not quite what we expected. You know, he's a little rough around the edges the way he dresses. But man, he's preaching the message of God and people are listening to him. And maybe this is the beginning of the Messiah. And so they're all reasoning this. This is going through their minds. They're they're wondering. You might identify with this a little bit in in the way that people today speculate about prophecies in the Bible being fulfilled. And people wonder, well, where exactly is the Antichrist going to come from? 
You know, what is the end of the world look like? Who, who is the Antichrist? Is he alive today? Is she alive today? Is, is it the president? Is it, the, you know, the pope? Or is it whoever? There's all kinds of different ideas that have been put forth in history on who the Antichrist is. There's this speculation. And usually there'll be one little thing about a person that sort of identifies with the Antichrist, and then everyone speculates, this is the guy. So if you can identify with that a little bit, then you can identify with the Jews in Jesus' day who are beginning to hear John preach and and see the amazing things that are happening where people's hearts are being turned towards God. Maybe this is the Messiah. And so they come to John, and they ask him. (laughs) And John's response to them Uh, is very clear. He's not the Messiah. And and there are other passages where he talks about this as well. He's he's not the one. He's not the Messiah. And, And his attitude in this is to say less of me, more of him. And isn't this the right way for us to think as well? That our lives as followers of Jesus should be about less of me and more of him. I mean, who thinks that's a bad idea? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Oh, wait, I don't raise my hand, right? Who thinks that's a bad idea? All of us are like, well, of course. Jesus is greater. More of him, less of me. It's really easy to say, um, but it's often quite hard to live. It's something to to say that's a, that's a goal I have, like something I aspire to, but not necessarily something I'm working to, right? There's a difference between those kind of goals. But John gives us a fantastic example of a man who is committed to Christ and who is Christ-centered. Yes, John's message was repent, But let's not just think of John as the guy telling everyone to stop stuff, because it's much bigger than that. His message is to repent so that people are ready to receive the Messiah. John's message is all about Jesus, the Lamb of God, he will introduce him as, that comes to take away the sins of the world. So I want to look at his example in these few verses today and consider how it can help us to say less of me and more of him. So in this passage, there's three truths that I want us to try and grasp a hold of because they will help us to say less of me and more of him. The first one is very simple. Jesus is better than we understand. Jesus is better than we understand. Do you believe that? Better than you can wrap your mind around. Jesus is better. Luke has been contrasting Jesus and John throughout this book. He's showing Jesus is greater. And now John steps up and he speaks. And he also wants us to know that Jesus is superior to him. Superior in every sense of the word. He is greater. He is better. 
I'm not going to be able to find the right adjective to describe him as better than John or better than us or better than our imagination. But that's, that's the best I've got. So that's what we're going to work with. In John 1 and verse 7, speaking about John, it says this, He came as a witness to bear witness about that light so that all might believe through him. This was John's mission was to point to Jesus. He is the light. John's just the voice that talks about the light. John knew his role. He, he was not the headline act. He was just the opening act. He, he was the, the band that played while everyone was still coming in late. Uh, John was just there to warm people up and point them to Jesus. If this was a book, John's the guy who writes the foreword. And I know that there are very few people who read the forewords to books, right? When you pick up a book, you skip the foreword, skip the introduction, and get right to the first chapter. John's the guy with the foreword. It's not there to be about him. He's just to tell you about what's to come, to point to it, and tell you how good it is. John is certainly a man who's sent from God. But he wants us to know Jesus is the Messiah who is God. John comes out of the wilderness preaching, but Jesus comes down from heaven to earth. He is so much greater in every way. John is often referred to as being uh, in the regions of Jordan and in the regions beyond Jordan, the Jordan River. But Jesus comes preaching, yes, around Jordan and around Galilee and today in the United States and in all corners of the world, Jesus is greater, so much greater. John knows he is not the one and Jesus is so much better. Now, the thing about this expectation that is referenced in verse 15, this wondering about the Messiah is there were all sorts of different ideas about the coming Messiah, but most of them centered around the fact that he's going to bring political deliverance. In other words, he's going to kick the Romans out of town, and he's going to reign, and he's going to be the king. He is going to establish his kingdom that will last forever. And that is certainly what the Old Testament pictures and looks forward to the Messiah doing. But the Old Testament picture of the Messiah is bigger than him ruling and reigning. The picture that's presented throughout the Old Testament is also the Messiah is going to redeem. He's going to rescue. And, and, and maybe nobody lays it out clearer than Isaiah. And we, we know Isaiah 53, where it lays out the Messiah is actually going to suffer for the sins of his people. Before the Messiah will rule, he will suffer. You know, before the crown, there's the cross. Jesus dies to rescue people from their sins, and then he will come and rule. But what they understood was pieces of the picture. And I just want to say to you today, whatever you know of Jesus, whether you are a new believer or whether you've read way too many theology books, 
I'm not sure if that's possible. But uh, whether you've read all the theology, been in all the classes, I want you to know that all that you know about Jesus is just the tiniest bit. Just the tiniest bit. He is unsearchable. There's no exhausting your understanding of him. There's no getting to the point where you're like, oh, I know it all. If that's what you think, you're, you're missing so much. So very much. Jesus is greater. He's better. And John wants us to know that Jesus is better than anybody else. He's more important than anyone else. Seeing him is better than seeing anyone else. Being in his presence is better than any other. He is better than any who came before. And none that come after him will rival him. Jesus is better. And and again, I, I wish I had a better word than that. It's not even fair. It's it's comparing things that are incomparable. And John knows this, and you you see it reflected in even the way he talks about Jesus and being unworthy to unloosen his shoes. Friends, if we believe Jesus is better than we understand, could I ask you a question? Why do we often look to others to meet our needs if Jesus is better than we understand. If Jesus is the Savior, why do we expect other things and other people to save us? I don't know about you, but I I can do that. When, for example, when I need wisdom, I can be quick to look to the wisdom of others without running to my knees and running to the Bible to look for the wisdom of God. Isn't it silly how we do things like that? We look for pleasure and joy, and we think that's to be found by running away from God. But it's actually to be found by running to Him. Because Jesus is better than we understand. And John wants everyone to know he's not the answer. He's not the conclusion. He's the forward to the story. John is just pointing to the Savior. He's pointing to the Messiah. Jesus is the one who's worth waiting for. The hope they need is on the horizon. So dear friends, let's look to Jesus as John pointed those who looked to him. Not only do we look to others to be our savior, but we, we sometimes act as though we are the savior that others need. You know, that we are the ones who can fix everyone else's problems. We are the one who can solve it all. And make every wrong right and solve every difficulty. We set ourselves up as the savior. But John says, no, no, no. You're expecting the Messiah and you're wondering if that's me? Not me. (laughs) You know, John doesn't go all into this, but I'm sure he would say something like this. No, if you look at my life and you look at the things I'm doing, and then you look at what the scripture says about the Messiah, 
it's far better. He's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to heal the lame. He's going to raise the dead. The very signs that Jesus would later point to, to encourage John to remember that he's the one. No, Jesus is better, greater, more amazing, more fantastic, more trustworthy. Look to him. His presence is what we desperately need. If we can grab a hold of this truth that Jesus is better than we understand, then we can say, you know what? Less of me and more of him. Look at verse 16 and we'll see John's words. And this leads us to, I think, the second truth that I want you to remember this morning. Jesus is better than we understand and his glory is better than our story. His glory is better than our story. John says in verse 16, as for me, I baptize you with water. So John references what he's doing and he's going to compare what Jesus is doing. But first, let's think a little bit about what John's doing. He's baptizing with water. So he's plunging people in, immersing people in water. For what purpose? Why is John doing this? Well, it involved confession. Uh, Confession. And not just confession of sins, but confession of faith. Because John is pointing to the coming Messiah, right? He's sent to bear witness of the light that through him, everyone who believes might be saved. John's sent to point people to Jesus and he is preparing the way of the Lord, as Pastor Derek preached last week. How do you get ready for the Messiah? You repent and you look to him. You turn from your sins and you turn in faith to God. And so John is preaching this and calling people to repent. I think it's significant that we remember who John is. You're like, okay, I know who John is. He's the guy in camel's hair. He eats bugs and he tells people to repent. That's John. Well, yes, but remember who John's dad is. John's dad's a priest, which means John could be a priest, should be a priest. It's in the family. Uh, John's dad's a priest who works at the temple, who offers sacrifices at the temple. This was how the people could confess and make an atonement for their sin. Notice what is absent from John's message. He never says, go to the temple. He never says, go keep the law so you can be right with God. No, he tells them to repent and to look to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The the salvation that people need is not going to come from the temple. It's not going to come from the blood of a bull or a goat. It's not going to come through the law. Something better has come. John doesn't call them to sacrifice. He calls them to repent and to believe the good news that the Messiah has come, is coming. Something better than the law has come. Now, Jesus will fulfill the law. He's not against the law. He fulfills it. But salvation is not going to come through the law. 
It's going to come through the Messiah. This is what makes Jesus so much greater. Right? Having salvation, being at peace with God, isn't about just keeping a list of rules. It is about knowing Jesus Christ. John says, my baptism is preparing the way. Now, it seems like Jesus' early followers were people who were baptized by John. Uh, You can see that clearly if you read the beginning of the Gospel of John. Not to be confusing, but it's not John the Baptist who wrote that. That's John the Apostle. And he describes John baptizing and some of John's followers beginning to follow Jesus. John is pointing to Christ as being better. Uh, look, look back in verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. He says, the, the one you're looking for is stronger than me. The coming one is the, the mighty one. He's mighty, certainly in the sense of his strength and his power and what he's able to accomplish, but also in his glory, in his majesty. He's better. He's greater. John even says he's not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. Now, this is kind of strange for us, right? You don't go home, sit down, and then wait for someone to come take your shoes off for you. Unless you're a very small child, in which case you're probably not in here right now. You're in the nursery or upstairs. We don't do that. Like, that seems really weird. Why would somebody undo my shoes? Some of you are like, no one is touching my feet. I don't care what it is. It's not going to happen. And, but this was, um, this was something that a slave might do. Come over and untie the shoes and wash the feet. Now, this was regarded as such a, such a low service that Jews that were slaves were actually forbidden to do this. So if you had a Jewish slave, you could ask him to do all kinds of things for you. But you couldn't ask him to get down and unloosen your shoes for you. That was regarded as too low. And John, in describing how great Jesus is and how far below him he is and how how glorious he is, he says, listen, guys, the lowest task that you can think of is too high for me. Now, he's not trying to say that he's a worthless piece of trash. That's not what John's saying. What he's saying is Jesus is so great that the very tiniest thing I could do to serve him would be such a great privilege that it's a privilege too high for me. It's like anything that I could do for Jesus would be a tremendous honor. The, The smallest thing would be a great honor. Charles Spurgeon preached an entire sermon on this little idea called loosing the shoe latchet is what it's called. And if you want to Google that and read it, I would encourage you to. It is, uh, it's very encouraging. Not right now, but 
I mean, it could be more profitable. I don't know. But don't. Don't try right now. But this is what he said. Nothing is dishonorable by which Jesus may be honored. Nothing lowers a man if thereby he honors his Lord. It is not possible for any godly work to be beneath our dignity. Rather ought we to know that the lowest grade of service bestows dignity upon the man who heartily performs it. Listen to this. He says, even the least and most obscure form of serving Christ is more high and lofty than we are worthy to undertake. John says, anything that I could do for Christ, even if it was regarded as the most lowly and despicable thing for a person to do for another person, he says, I would be so honored because I'm not even worthy of that. And this is the guy who has maybe the greatest privilege because he gets to stand on the stage and says, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus of Nazareth, who's not just born of Mary and Joseph, but he's the son of God who's come down from heaven to be the savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah, what we've all been waiting for. It's Jesus. And that's a great privilege. He's not just the guy in backstage polishing Jesus' shoes. He's the guy standing up front introducing him. But he says, even the littlest thing I could do for him would be an honor. It'd be an honor that I don't deserve. That's an amazing attitude, isn't it? Less of me, more of him. What do you do to serve Jesus? Some of us serve in ways that are visible to others. Uh, some of us serve in ways that our, our name gets mentioned sometimes, that, oh, see so-and-so, they're doing this, or thank you, so-and-so, for doing that. And, and that's all great. We want to commend and encourage everyone who's serving. But others serve in ways that don't get noticed at all. How do you view that service? If we're saying more of me, we, we start to get the attitude that, why don't they notice? And I, I'm doing this and no one seems to appreciate it. Is it a privilege to serve the Lord or is it a burden? And John, John is such an amazing example because he could take the, the lowest thing it says, I would gladly do it for Christ. So John is emphasizing the honor of Jesus. His glory is greater. It's better. John says, more important than you know me. You, you don't even need to know me. I, I can be the slave that has the lowest task of all. Which, by the way, is probably not going to be known by name. Probably not going to be immortalized. That slave's name is probably not etched in stone in a monument that we're going to dig up in Israel and say, oh, that's the name of the untying the shoe guy. Nobody's going to do that. John says, that would be an honor to be that guy. If I could just lift up Jesus, I could just exalt him. It's not about me being known. John knows that Jesus' work is so much greater than his. 
All the glory goes to him. He, he goes on to describe what Jesus is going to do that's so much better than what he does. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, this is one baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we could spend like a whole sermon talking about this. But I, I, want, to, I want to just briefly look at a couple of passages of Scripture. I'm going to go to them quickly. If you want to write them down, you can. Or if you're quick with turning pages, you can, uh, you can turn and look at them as well. The prophet Ezekiel demanded that the people get a new spirit and a new heart in Ezekiel 18.31. But he later recorded this promise from God in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. He says, Behold, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will be careful to do my judgments. This is the promise of the new covenant that, that God says he is going to do for his people. John can call the people to repent. He can dunk them in the water, but he cannot change their hearts. But Jesus is going to baptize them with the Spirit and with fire. He is able, by his power, to change the inside. Uh, the demonstration of a person going down into the water, it might rinse off a little dust from them, and it might publicly confess that they are admitting their sin and looking for a Redeemer, but it doesn't change their hearts. It doesn't transform them. It's something external, but what Jesus is going to do is transform the inside. How superior is Jesus' work to John's? The Spirit makes all things new. The Spirit regenerates. It gives life. It cleanses and indwells. It illumines us. It empowers us. The Spirit of God. John could say, less of me, more of him. So I can, I can get you wet, but he can change your heart. This one baptism has two experiences. It's blessing for the repentant and judgment for the unrepentant. It's baptism with spirit and fire. Fire is explained in verse 17. And one reference from the Old Testament to give you is Isaiah 4 and verse 4. This is the only place in the Old Testament where we see the idea of the spirit and fire together. Listen to it. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and rinsed away the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning or of fire, of flame. The context of the spirit and the fire is a judgment that would come. And that's what John is talking about. If you look back in verse number 9 of Luke 3, John uses this image of the axe being laid at the root of the trees. And he says, Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And if we go back 
to verse 17, right after saying he will baptize you with spirit and fire, he gives an illustration to explain what he's talking about. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So um, everyone knows exactly what a winnowing fork is, right? Good, we don't need to explain that. Um, Now, a winnowing fork, what in the world are we talking about? Well, uh, we have to go back and uh, imagine a bunch of grain has just been hauled in from the field and it's been brought to a special place called the threshing floor. Uh, So it's a stone place where the wheat is brought and a winnowing fork is a giant fork, basically. Uh, If you think of a pitchfork, you're pretty close to what what this would be. It'd be made out of wood, usually. And uh, the, the person working this wheat would take his winnowing fork and he would scoop into the grain and he would toss it up in the air and he would be tossing it around trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, the the good part from the part they didn't want. And the part they would use to make grain and the or to make bread and all manner of things and the part that would be discarded or would be burned up and uh, and gotten rid of. And this is the way John describes Jesus' work of baptizing with the Spirit and fire. It's an image that we're like, how is that like baptizing with Spirit and with fire? Um, when, you, when you baptize something, you immerse it into it. Um, so um, you, you might talk about someone uh, baptizing a cloth in order to dye it. Um, So we don't talk that way, but the term that's used, that's translated baptized, would be used that way. So you've got someone who's preparing cloth and they're dyeing it to make it a different color. They're baptizing it in that water. They're immersing it in the water and it's identified then uh, with that color that's in it. It's transformed really by it. It's marked. Um, It's plunged into it and it's identified with it. And when we do baptism, we often say that we're identifying with Christ. We're identifying that our old man has died and is raised to new life. That is our old self is put to the, to the grave and now we're alive in Christ. And we say we're identifying with what Jesus did, that he died on the cross, he was laid buried in the tomb, and then he raised again to new life. We're identified with that. Jesus comes and he brings this spirit and fire judgment on the world. John is envisioning, I think, Jesus not only preaching a message that's going to divide, just like John is doing now, but coming in the end and bringing all things together and separating, uh, to use Jesus' imagery, the sheep from the goats, separating the wheat from the chaff, his people from the ungodly. And John envisions Jesus wrapping all this up. He is the one who's going to come and make all things right. And this is what was said about Jesus, even going back in Luke 2. Simeon to his mother said, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. 
His coming is going to lead to judgment for some and salvation for others. The idea of the Messiah then is a savior, but also is a judge. That was part of the expectation that the Messiah would come and bring deliverance. He would establish a kingdom that would last forever and ever and ever. A kingdom with no end. The idea of Jesus coming as a judge may not seem glorious to you. It may seem a little uncomfortable to you. The idea that that God is going to judge people for their sins is something that lots of people recoil from and say, ah, I don't want a God who judges sin. But it's interesting to me that the same people who complain about a God who judges sin will often bemoan the fact that there is evil in the world. You know, how could there be a God if all this evil is in the world? How could God allow all this to happen? That's a voice that's actually asking for a judge that will come and punish evil, that will rid the world of evil. Jesus is the savior of all who will come to him, all who will repent and believe. His mercy is extended, and John pointed to that, and we point to that still today. But Jesus will come and bring judgment. He's going to bring salvation that is better than political deliverance. Better than an earthly utopia. He's going to bring first forgiveness. The indwelling of the spirit to adopt us as God's children. Going back to John 1 um, you, why don't you turn over there with me? If you're in Luke 3, just go a few pages to your right. Go to John 1. I read verse 7 where it says, He came as a witness to bear witness about that light so that all might believe through him. Verse 8 says, He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Speaking of Jesus, he came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But notice verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And what's, what's better than an earthly utopia? It is to be the child of God. To be brought into a right relationship with God. To be forgiven. To be at peace. To be at home. This is what Jesus came to do. Down in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. John says, Jesus is so glorious that even though on earth he was born after I was, actually he existed before me because he came down from heaven to be the savior of the world. His glory is so great, 
so big, so wonderful. Since John knew Jesus was like this, he could say less of me and more of him. That's exactly what he said in John 3.30. Not exactly, but he said these words. He must increase, but I must decrease. John knew that Jesus was better than anything we could imagine, anything we could hope for. And he knew that his glory was better than anything John could do or say or be known for. Jesus was greater, less of me and more of him. Now back in John, or I'm sorry, back in Luke 3, I want to look at the last three verses of our text here briefly. It says that with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the gospel to the people. Uh, See, we only have a little bit of John's preaching, but he did lots of it. This word for exhortation is a, it's a pastoral kind of word of encouraging, exhorting, trying to get people to listen and to do what's right, and even to proclaim the gospel, which means the good news. John wasn't just known for what he was against. He was known for what he was before. He was for the Messiah, the, the coming of the Lord. He was pointing people to that. And that led to some trouble because as much as the crowds loved John, um, not everyone did. And in particular, one man is singled out here, Herod, who did not like John. But I think John understood that Jesus was better and that his glory was better. His truth was better. That's our third truth for us to grasp. His truth is better than fleeting favor. John was a passionate man, passionate about the truth, passionate about calling people to believe it. And he confronted Herod. Now, this is a different Herod than the one that's at the birth of Jesus. That's Herod the Great. Uh, This one is called Herod the Tetrarch, or in history, Herod Antipas. Um, So here's the deal with Herod. He had an affair with a woman named Herodias. Herod, Herodias. I mean, that seems super vain to me already. But Herod does this. Um, The thing is, Herod's uh, new love interest happened to be the wife of his brother, Philip. Um, and after she divorced Philip, she married Herod. Um, so Herodias was also, I believe, the daughter of Herod's half-brother. So it's all very um, just unnatural and bad. And the Jews hated that he had done this because it was such a violation. You know, John is preaching that the Messiah is coming. The king is coming for the Jews. And Herod is clearly not the king because he's, he's not the guy they're looking for. He is not obedient to God. He's not honoring God. He's rejecting everything. Herod then is the example of those in verse 17 who are that chaff that unwanted part of the wheat that's going to be cast out into judgment. 
He's a man that's following his passions and refusing to submit to God. And he may be enjoying it at the moment. But it's going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end. John, on the other hand, is not enjoying it at the moment. Uh, Luke doesn't go all into what happened, but basically because of John's doing this, he gets thrown into prison and eventually he will have his head chopped off. He'll be executed uh, by Herod for, um, well, saying what was unpopular. John was committed to the truth no matter the cost. That's why he could say more of him and less of me because he knew that there was something more important than what a mighty man might threaten him with. There was something more important than what was popular uh, in his day or what would gain him approval in that day. And that was God's truth. Listen, there might be a high cost for following Jesus. But it is worth it. There there might be a cost greater than we see right now to following Jesus. But he's worth it. There's no need to fear a man who can only do something to our body when we worship a God who can handle men's souls. The worst Herod could do is send John to meet his Lord. That doesn't actually seem too bad, does it? That was the worst he could do. The best he could do was send him into the presence of his God. And yet Herod has spent a long time now not in the presence of God. Who would you rather be today? John the Baptist or Herod? Friends, God's truth is much better than fleeting favor. Much better than fleeting pleasures. The things of this world pass away. But he that does the will of God remains forever. John is committed to serve Christ more than he serves his own safety more than he serves his own comfort. And he stands as a rebuke to us all. It's even in John's imprisonment and death, he cries out to you and to me, repent. Say, repent of what? And how often have we backed away from what we knew God wanted us to do for something far less than an angry, murderous king threatening us? We backed away from something we knew the Lord wanted us to do because we were a little tired and didn't feel like getting up and doing it. Or or we were concerned that somebody might look at us funny if we brought up the Lord. John, from the prison, says, repent, (laughs) repent. His truth is better than fleeting favor. His glory is so much better than your story, man. Unloose his shoes. Serve him. 
Because he is greater. He is better. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one we're looking for. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. May God help us to grasp the truths that John seemed to know so clearly. Jesus is better. His glory is better. His truth is better. Let's be known for being for Jesus. Let's be known for pointing to him. Let's be known not for bringing attention to ourselves, not trying to get people to notice us, but to get people to notice Jesus, to get people to hear his word, to get people to seek his glory, because he is worth it. And the smallest thing you and I could do to help people see Jesus is the greatest privilege we will ever have in this life. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we need your help. We need to come to you today just like John's audience in the first century and confess, Lord, we need to repent. Oh God, we know that you are great. We know that your truth is better. We know that your work is mighty and powerful. We know that you are coming again and you will judge this world and you will establish your kingdom forever. Evil will be vanquished once and for all. You will demonstrate your righteousness and your goodness. And yet, Lord, we confess that we often make life more about us and less about you. We're more concerned with what other people think of us than what you think of us. Lord, forgive us. We are quick to seek help from everywhere, but slow to come admitting our need to you, slow to depend on you. Lord, forgive us. We look at the pleasures of this world. We look at the temptations that are before us. And instead of turning to you to see that you are our joy and our hope in life and death, we look to the things of this world. Lord, forgive us. We give you thanks, God, that in spite of our sin, you have loved us. And you sent us not just John to prepare the way, but Jesus to make the way. 
the way that we could not make in our own, the way that we could not make through the law or good works. Jesus made the way for us to be forgiven and be made righteous by laying down his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for our wicked sins. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for forgiveness. Thank you for mercy. I pray that you might use your word today to change our hearts so that more and more, Lord, we we say less of us and more of you. May you be glorified in our lives, we pray.